Welcome back to Psych Your Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann, and as always, I'm so happy to have you here uh, joining me. Um, I always tell you guys that I never thought that I would be doing this for this long, and I truly, truly mean it. I'm so happy that um, all of you from all around the world are listening. Um, to be honest, like I say, I maybe thought a few friends or family would listen. I definitely never thought that people from all over the world would be listening to me. So I truly, truly, truly appreciate it. I see that um, we have listeners from Germany. I'm so happy and grateful to see you. New Zealand, once again, showing up with the support. And we have our first sales from the merchandise store. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. We've added some new merchandise and um we do have international shipping it's why uh we decided to go through um designed by humans so the store is called crime scandal on the design by humans so if you go through design by humans and find the crime scandal store at the design by humans collective that's where our merch is um and like i said i chose to go through them so that i could ensure that they had international shipping so i could get through to my international fans um, every single design comes in either t-shirts, both men's and women's, um, tank tops, uh, sweatshirts, hoodies, and then you can also get them in art prints, stickers, mouse pads, and cell phone cases. So even if you just want to show your support, but maybe don't have enough money so that you can get a whole t-shirt or a sweatshirt, you can grab a sticker or an art print, even just do a cell phone case, whatever, uh, hit your bank account. If even maybe you don't want to go that high, we do have, I have the Patreon. Um, you can do the minimum level, which will give you early access to content. And um, we'll give you little facts and pictures as well that you wouldn't have just by listening regularly. And then the next level, $25. Well, so the first level is five. The next level, $25. That gets you a free t-shirt. And then it also gives you the ability to request a crime. So you can request that I cover a crime. Um, that's a new thing that we did not have before. So if you want to head over to the Patreon, I'm going to put the uh, links to both the store and the Patreon um, in the description. Um, like I said, I always, always, always appreciate the support that you guys uh, show me. Um, so without further ado, we're going to get into this week's crime. It is Dennis Nielsen. Some people refer to him as Britain's version of Jeffrey Dahmer. Dennis Nielsen was born on the 23rd of November uh, 1945 in Frosterburg, Aberdeenshire, the second of three children, born to Elizabeth Duffy White and Olav Magnus Mokshim, who had changed his last name to Nielsen. His father was a Norwegian soldier who traveled to Scotland in 1940 as part of the Free Norwegian Forces following the German occupation of Norway. After a brief courtship, he married Elizabeth White in May 1942 and the newlyweds moved into her parents' home. The marriage between Nielsen's parents was extremely difficult. Olav Nielsen did not view married life with any seriousness and he was preoccupied with his duties with the Free Norwegian Forces and he made little attempt to spend time with or find a new home for his wife. After the birth of their third child, Nielsen's mother concluded she had rushed into marriage without thinking. The couple divorced in 1948. 
All three of the couple's children, Olav Jr., Dennis, and Sylvia, had been conceived on their father's brief visits to the mother's household. Her parents, Andrew and Lily, who had never approved of their daughter's choice of husbands, were supportive of their daughter following her divorce and considerate of their grandchildren. Nielsen was quite yet an adventurous child. His earliest memories were of family picnics in the Scottish countryside and his mother and siblings and of his grandparents' pious lifestyle, which he would later describe as extremely cold and serious, and of being taken on long countryside walks and carried on the shoulders of his maternal grandfather, to whom he was extraordinarily close. Olaf Jr. and Sylvia occasionally accompanied Dennis and his grandfather on these walks. Despite only being five years old, Nelson vividly recalled these walks as being long and along the harbor across wide stretches of beach up to sand dunes, which rise 30 feet beyond the beach and on the interlocking. He later described this stage of his childhood as one of contentment and that his grandfather was his greatest hero and protector adding that whenever his grandfather, who was a fisherman, was at sea, life would be empty until he returned. By 1951, Nielsen's grandfather's health was in extreme decline, but he did continue to work. On the 31st of October 1951, while fishing in the Northern Sea, he died of a heart attack at the age of 62. His body was brought ashore and returned to the White family home prior to burial. And what Nielsen later described as his most vivid childhood memory, his mother, weeping, asked him whether he wanted to see his grandfather. When he replied he did, he was taken into the room where his grandfather laid in an open casket. As Nielsen gazed upon the body, his mother told him his grandfather was sleeping, adding that his grandfather had gone to a better place. In the years following the death of his grandfather, Nielsen became more quiet and withdrawn often standing alone at the harbor watching the herring boats. At home, he seldom participated in family activities and retreated from any attempts by adult family members to demonstrate any affection towards them. Nielsen grew to resent what he saw as the unfamiliar amount of attention his mother, grandmother, and later stepfather displayed towards his older brother and younger sister. He envied Olaf Jr.'s popularity. He often talked to or played games with his younger sister, Sylvia, to whom he was closer than any other family member. Because the impact of trauma in children depends so heavily on the life stage during which the event occurs, this chapter is informed by a particular emphasis on developmental analysis. This perspective assumes the repercussions and meanings of major object loss will be colored by the individual childhood child's level of development. So we're going to go a little bit into the effect that death has on children. So that's what I'm starting to talk about. Psychiatrists and others have generally been struck by how often major childhood losses seem to result in psycho psychopathology. Studies of adults with various mental health disorders, especially depression, frequently reveal childhood bereavement suggesting that such a loss may precipitate or contribute to the development of a variety of psychiatric disorders, and that this experience can render a person emotionally vulnerable for life. This special vulnerability of children is attributed to developmental immaturity and insufficiently developed coping capacities. The tendency to impose adult models on children has generally led to a great deal of confusion and misunderstanding about childhood grieving. 
Although sharing some similarities with adults and even with some primates, children's reactions to loss do not look exactly like adult reactions, either in their specific manifestations or their duration. For example, often what seems like glib and unemotional in a small child, such as telling every single visitor or stranger on the street, my sister died, is a child's way of seeking support and observing others to gauge how they should feel. Children may be observed playing games in which the death or funeral activities are reenacted in an effort to try and master the loss. A child may ask the same question about death over and over again, not so much for factual value of information as for reassurance that the story hasn't changed. A four or five-year-old might resume playing following the death as if nothing distressing had happened. Such behavior reflects the cognitive and emotional capacity of child and does not mean that the death had no impact. Losses are so painful and frightening that many young children able to endure strong emotions for only very brief periods of time, alternately approach and avoid their feelings so as not to be overwhelmed. Because these emotions may be expressed as angry outbursts or misbehavior rather than sadness, they may not be recognized as grief-related. Furthermore, because their needs can be cared for and related to and are intense and immediate, young children typically move from grief reactions to a prompt search for and acceptance of replacement persons. Unlike adults who can sustain a year or more of intense grieving, children are likely to manifest grief-related affects and behavior on an intermittent basis for many years after a loss occurs. Various powerful reactions to the loss normally will be revived, reviewed, and worked through repeatedly at successive levels of subsequent development. Thus, in dealing with children who have sustained a loss, it is important to be aware of the special nature of grieving in children and not to expect that they will express their emotions like adults or that their overt behaviors will necessarily reveal their distress. As noted later on, the delayed working through a bereavement may require specialized assistance if development seems blocked or psychopathological symptoms appear. A number of studies have been conducted in recent years, one by Professor Anthony, the Bluebond Langer study, the Gabney study, the Kane study, the Kotcher study, the Magnin Pearson study, the McCabe study, the Paget study. I mean, there's, I could keep going, there's like 50 of them, to determine how children at various ages comprehend death. A fairly standard view was put forth by Najee in 1948. And that analyzing the words and drawings of a relatively large sample, 378 Hungarian children who had been exposed to considerable trauma and death in the preceding few years. She conceptualized a three-stage model of awareness and linked the stages to approximate chronological ages. Prior to about three years of age, children's cognitive language and development is too immature for them to have any concept of death. According to Najee's stage one, which is roughly ages three to five, death is seen as reversible. The dead are simply considered less alive in a state similar to sleep. As true in all child development, there's considerable age variation in the attainment of different stages and children may regress when emotionally threatened. Observational studies of children between the ages of about four and adolescence have led psych psychiatrists to conflicting conclusions about the nature of children's grieving and about their ability to achieve a healthy outcome. 
Some psychoanalysts maintain that it's not until adolescence that children have the capacity to tolerate the strong painful affects necessary for completing the separation process, and that children are more likely to use immature defense mechanisms such as denial that interfere with adequate resolution of loss. Thus, these observers view children's reactions to loss as qualitatively different from adult reactions. Others believe that after objective consistency has been achieved at three to four years of age, bereavement need not necessarily lead to enduring psychopathology, meaning things like um, becoming <laughs> things like becoming a murderer, things like fo focusing obsessions with people who have passed, things like that. Increasingly, it is being recognized that if a child has a consistent adult who reliably satisfies reality needs and encourages the expression of feelings about the loss, healthy adjustment can occur. Furthermore, the biologic unfolding inherent in developmental nature pushes children towards increasing cognitive and emotional maturity. Meaning if you have a healthy, well-adjusted adult in their life that's going to model appropriate um, mature behavior, it's going to push them towards learning uh, better behavior, and it's going to push them towards handling things in an emotionally mature way. This developmental push is seen as an asset that contributes to children's potential resiliency under favorable circumstances. Some psychiatrists, most notably Balbi, emphasize the similarities between adults and children's responses to loss and see an evolutionary basis for them. In Balbi's view, the argument about children's capacity for mourning is in large part terminal, terminological, with many psychoanalysts restricting the use of mourning to psychological process with a single outcome, detachment, and others using it more broadly to denote a fairly wide array of psychological processes set in a train by a loss of a loved one, irrespective of the outcome. Kilming suggested at one of the committee sites that perhaps too much concern is focused on this debate. In his opinion, it would be more fruitful to have a detailed understanding of the bereavement process in children so that those who interact with kids can be the most responsive and helpful. The death of a parent during childhood has been linked with a wide range of serious and enduring health problems as well, um, and not just mental illness. As far as mental illness, it has been linked to schizophrenia, major depression, and suicide. The particular symptoms and syndromes associated with childhood bereavement are generally considered in terms of immediate reactions that occur within weeks and months following the death. The intermediate reactions that can appear later on in childhood or adolescence and the long range or sleeper effects that may appear in adulthood, either as enduring consequences or delayed reactions. Although these long range effects are of the most concern, the research and evidence in this particular area is the weakest. Now, on one of his solo excursions to the beach at, in Verlaki in 1954, Nielsen became submerged beneath the water and was almost dragged out to sea. He initially panicked, flailing his arms and shouting. As he gasped for air, which didn't seem to be there, he recalled believing that his grandfather was about to arrive and pull him free, before experiencing a sense of tranquility. His life was saved by another youth who dragged him ashore. Shortly after this incident, Nilsson's mother moved out of the grandparents' home and into a flat with her free children. She later married a builder named Andrew Scott, who 
she had four more children with in as many years. Although Nielsen initially resented his stepfather, whom he viewed as a very, very unfair disciplinarian, he gradually came to grudgingly respect him. The family moved to Stricken in 1955. At the onset of puberty, Nielsen discovered he was gay, which initially confused and shamed him. He kept his sexuality hidden from his family and his friends, because many of the boys with whom he was attracted had facial features similar to those of his sister Sylvia. On one occasion, he fondled her, believing that his attraction towards boys might be a manifestation of the care he felt for her. Nielsen made no efforts to seek sexual contact with any of the peers with whom he was sexually attracted to, although he later said that he had been Although later he said he had been fondled by an older youth and did not find the experience unpleasant. On one occasion, he also caressed and fondled the body of his older brother as he slept. As a result of this, Olaf Jr. had begun to suspect his brother was gay and regularly belittled him in public, referring to Dennis as a hen, which is Scottish dialect for girl. Nelson initially believed that his fondling of his sister may have been evidence that he was actually a bisexual. As Nielsen progressed into adolescence, he found life in Strickland increasingly stifling with limited entertainment or career opportunities. He respected his parents' efforts to provide and care for their children, but began to resent the fact that his family was poorer than most of his peers. With his father and stepmother, with his mother and stepfather making no effort to better their lifestyles, Nielsen seldom invited his friends to the family home. At the age of 14, he joined the Army Cadet Force, viewing the British Army as a potential avenue for escaping his rural origins. Nelson's scholastic record was above average. He displayed a flair for history and art, but shunned sports. He finished his schooling in 1961 and briefly worked in a canning factory, as he considered which career path he should choose. After three weeks at the factory, Nielsen informed his mother that he intended to join the army, where he intended to train as a chef. Nielsen passed the entrance examinations and received an official notification he would enlist for nine years service in September of 1961. Commencing his training with the Army Catering Corps at St. Omar Barracks in Aldershot, Hampshire. Within weeks, Nielsen began to excel in his army duties. He later described his three years of training at Aldershot as the happiest of my life. He relished the travel opportunities afforded to him in his training and recalled as a highlight his regiment taking part in a ceremonial parade attended by both the Queen and Field Marshal Lord Montgomery of Almion. While stationed at Aldershot, Nielsen's latent feelings began to stir, but he kept his sexual orientation hidden from his colleagues. Nielsen never showered in the company of his fellow shoulders for Phil of developing an erection in their presence, instead opting to bathe alone in the bathroom, which also afforded him the privacy to do <laughs> what he felt he needed to do without discovery. In mid-1964, Nielsen passed his initial catering exam and was officially assigned to the 1st Battalion of the Royal Fusiliers in Osenbruck, Germ West Germany, where he served as a private. In his deployment, Nielsen began to increase his intake of alcohol. He described himself and his colleagues as hardworking and a boozy lot. His colleagues recalled he often drank to excess in order to ease his shyness. On one occasion, Nielsen and a German youth drank themselves into a stupor. When Nielsen awoke, he found himself on the floor of the German youth's flat. 
No sexual activity had occurred, but the incident fueled Nielsen's sexual fantasies, which initially involved his sexual partner, a young slender male, being completely passive. These fantasies gradually evolved into his partner being unconscious or dead. On several occasions, Nielsen also made tentative efforts to have his own prone body sexually interfered with by one of his colleagues. In these instances, whenever he and his colleagues drank to excess, Nelson would pretend he was inebriated in the hope one of his colleagues would make sexual use of his unconscious body. Following two years of service in Osnabrück, Nielsen returned to Aldershot, where he passed his official catering exam before being deployed to serve as a cook for the British Army in Norway. In 1967, he was deployed to the state of Aben, formerly Aben Colony, where he again served as a cook to the Al Mansora prison. This posting was more dangerous than his previous postings in West Germany or Norway. And Nielsen later recalled his regiment losing several men, often in ambushes en route to the army barracks. Nelson was kidnapped by an Arab taxi driver who beat him unconscious and placed him in the boot of his car. Upon being dragged out of the boot of the taxi, Nelson grabbed a jack handle and knocked the taxi driver to the floor before beating him unconscious. He then locked the man in the boot of his own taxi. Unlike his previous postings, Nelson had his own room while stationed in Aben. This afforded him the privacy to masturbate without discovery. He developed fantasies of sex with unre unrestraint or deceased partners unfulfilled. Nielsen compensated by imagining sexual encounters with an unconscious body as he masturbated while looking at his own pro nude body in a mirror. On one occasion, Nielsen discovered that by using a freestanding mirror, he could create an effect whereby if positioning the mirror so his head was out of view, he could visualize himself engaged in a sexual act with another man. To Nelson, this ruse created the ideal circumstance in which he could visually split his personality. In these fantasies, Nelson alternately envisioned himself as being both the domineering and passive partner. These fantasies gradually evolved to incorporate his own near-death experience with the taxi driver. The dead bodies he had seen at Aben and the imagery within the 19th century oil paintings entitled The Raft of Medusa, which depicts an old man holding a lamp, the nude body of a dead youth, as he sits aside the dismembered body of another person. In Neil's most vividly recalled fantasy, a slender, attractive young blonde soldier who had been recently killed in battle is dominated by a faceless, dirty, gray-haired old man who was washing the body before engaging in necrophilia. Detailed section of the raft of Medusa, the old man holding the nude body. When the bonfire had been reduced to ashes and cinders, Nelson used a rake to search the debris for any recognizable bones. Noting a skull was still intact, he smashed it to pieces with his rake. On about the 4th of January, 1981, Nelson encountered an unidentified man whom he described for investigators as an 18-year-old blue-eyed Scot, the Golden Lion Pum in Soho. He was lured to Melrose Avenue under the promise of partaking in a drinking game. After Nelson and his victim consumed several beverages, Nelson strangled him with a tie and subsequently placed his body beneath the floorboards. 
Nielsen is known to have informed his employers he was ill and unable to attend work on the 12th of January. In order so he could dissect both his victim and another unidentified victim he killed one month earlier. By April, Nielsen had killed two unidentified victims, one of whom he described as an English skinhead whom he met in Lister. The other he described as a Belfast boy, a man in his early 20s, approximately 5'9", whom he had murdered sometime in February. In relation to the first of these three unidentified victims, he later casually reflected, end of the day, end of the drink, end of a person, floorboards, back, carpet replaced, and back to work at Denmark Street. The following month, Nielsen removed the internal organs of several victims, stowed them beneath his floorboards. He discarded these innards both upon the waste ground above his flat and in his household garbage. God, that place must smell foul. The final victim to be murdered at Melrose Avenue was 23-year-old Malcolm Barlow, who Nelson discovered slumped against the wall outside his home on the 17th of September, 1981. When Nelson inquired as to Barlow's welfare, he was informed the medication Barlow was prescribed for his epilepsy had caused his legs to weaken. Nelson suggested that Barlow should be in hospital and, supporting him, walked him into his residence before phoning an ambulance. The following day, Barlow was released from hospital and returned to Nelson's home, apparently to thank him. He was inviting in and after eating a meal, began drinking rum and coke before falling asleep on the sofa. Nelson strangled Barlow as he slept before stowing his body beneath the kitchen sink the following morning. In mid-1981, Nelson's landlord decided to renovate 195 Melrose Avenue and asked Nelson to vacate the property. Nelson was initially resistant to, to this, but accepted an offer of a thousand pounds from the landlord to vacate the residence. He moved into an attic flat at 23D Cranley Gardens in the Musewell Hill district north of London on the 5th of October. The day before he vacated the property, Nelson burned the dissected bodies of the last five victims he had killed upon the third and final bonfire he constructed in the garden behind the flat. Again, Nelson ensured the bonfire was crowned with an old car tire to disguise the smell of burning flesh. Nelson had already dissected the bodies of four of these victims in January and August and only needed to complete the dissection of Barlow for the last bonfire. At 23 Cranley Gardens, Nelson had no access to a garden, and as he resided in an attic flat, he was unable to stow any bodies beneath the floorboards. For almost two months, any acquaintances Nielsen encountered and lured into his flat were not assaulted. Although he did attempt to strangle a 19-year-old student, but he stopped himself from completing. In March of 1982, Nelson encountered 23-year-old John Howlett while drinking in a pub near Lister. Howlett was lured to Nelson's flat on the promise of continuing to drink. There, both Nelson and Howlett drank as they watched a film before Howlett walked into Nelson's front room and fell asleep. One hour later, Nelson unsuccessfully attempted to rouse Howlett, then sat on the edge of the bed drinking rum as he stared at Howlett before deciding to kill him. Following a ferocious struggle in which Howlett attempted to strangle his attacker, Nelson strangled him into unconsciousness with an upholstery strap before returning to the living room, striking from the stress of the struggle, in which he believed he had almost been overpowered. On three occasions over the following 10 minutes, Nelson unsuccessfully attempted to kill his victim before noting he had resumed breathing, before deciding to fill his bathtub with water and drown him. For over a week following Howlett's murder, Nelson's own neck bore the victim's fingerprints. 
In May 1982, Nilsson encountered Carl Stodder, a 21-year-old gay man, as a youth drink at the Black Cat Pub in Camden. Nilsson engaged Stodder in conversation, discovering he was depressed following a failed relationship. After plying him with alcohol, Nelson invited him to his flat, assuring the guests he had no intention of any sexual activity. At the flat, Stoddard consumed more alcohol before falling asleep upon an open sleeping bag. He later awoke to find himself being strangled while Nelson whispered, stay still. In a subsequent testimony at Nelson's trial, Stoddard stated that he initially believed Nelson was trying to free him from the zipper of the sleeping bag before he returned to a state of unconsciousness. He then vaguely recalled hearing water running before realizing he was immersed in the water and that Nielsen was attempting to drown him. After briefly succeeding in raising his head above water, Stoddard gasped, no more please, no more, before Nielsen again submerged his head beneath the water. Believing he had killed him, Nielsen seated the youth in his armchair, then noted his dog, Bleep, licking Stoddard's face. Nielsen realized the tiniest thread of life was still clung to the youth. He rubbed his limbs and heart to increase the circulation, covered his body in blankets, and then laid him upon the bed. When he regained consciousness, Nielsen embraced him. Then he explained to him that he had almost strangled himself on the zipper of the sleeping bag, and he had resuscitated him. Over the following two days, Stoddard repeatedly lapsed in and out of consciousness. When he regained enough strength to question Nielsen as to what he remembered, and being immersed in water, Nelson explained he had become caught in the zip of the sleeping bag during the night, and he placed him in cold water because he was in shock. Nelson then led Stoddard to a nearby railway station, where he informed the youth that he hoped he might that they might meet again before he said farewell. Allen accepted Nelson's offer to accompany him. Three months after Nelson's June 1982 promotion to the position of executive officer. In his employment, he encountered a 27-year-old named Graham Allen, attempting to hail a taxi in Shaftesbury Avenue. Allen accepted Nielsen's offer to accompany him to Cranley Gardens for a meal. As had been the case in several previous victims, Nielsen stated he could not recall the precise moment he had strangled him, but recalled approaching him as he sat eating an omelet with the intention of murdering him. Allen's body was retained in the bathtub for three days before Nelson began dissecting it on the kitchen floor. Nelson again is known to have informed his employers he was ill and unable to come back to work on the 9th of October, likely in order to complete dissecting the body. On the 26th of January 1983, Nelson killed his final victim, 20-year-old Stephen Sinclair. Sinclair was last seen by acquaintances in the company of Nelson walking in the direction of the tube station. At Nelson's flat, Sinclair fell asleep in a drug and alcohol-induced sleeper stupor in an armchair as Nilsson sat listening to Tommy. Nilsson approached Sinclair, knelt before him, and said, Oh, Stephen, here I go again, before strangling Sinclair with a ligature made of a necktie and a rope. Noting crepe bandages on each of Sinclair's wrists, Nilsson removed these to discover slash marks from where he had tried to kill himself. Following his usual ritual of bathing the body, Nilsson laid Sinclair's body upon the bed, applied talcum powder to the body, then arranged three mirrors around the bed before himself. Several hours later, he turned Stephen's head towards him and said, Good night, Stephen. Nielsen then fell asleep besides the body. As he had been the case with Howlett and Allen, Sinclair's body was subsequently dissected, 
with various parts wrapped in plastic bags and stored either in a wardrobe, a tea chest, or within a drawer located beneath the bathtub. The bags used to seal Sinclair's remains were sealed with the same crepe bandages Nielsen had found upon Sinclair's wrists. Nielsen attempted to dispose of the flesh, internal organs, and smaller bones of the three victims by flushing them down the toilet. In a practice which he had conducted upon several victims, he also boiled their heads, hands, and feet to remove the flesh off of these sections of the victims' bodies. On the 4th of February, 1983, Nelson wrote a letter of complaint to estate agents complaining that the drains were blocked. <laughs> you are blocking the drains, dude. You are dumping body parts down the drains. It is not occurring to you that you are blocking your own drains. Like, wow. Like, wow. Okay. Wow. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, and that the situation for both himself and the other tenants was absolutely intolerable. The following day, he refused to allow an acquaintance to enter his property. The reason being he had begun to dismember Sinclair's body on his kitchen floor. Nelson's murders were first discovered by a dino rod, which is like rotor rooter for people here in the U.S., employee, Michael Catron, who responded to the plumbing complaints made by Nielsen and other tenants at Cranley Gardens on the 8th of February. Opening a drain cover at the side of the house, Catron discovered the drain was packed with flesh-like substance and a number of small bones. Catron reported this to his supervisor, Gary Willer. As Catron arrived on the property at dusk, he and Willer agreed to postpone further investigation into the blockage till the next morning. Prior to leaving the property, Nielsen fellow tenant Jim Alcock convened with Katran to discuss the source of the substance. Upon hearing Katran exclaim how similar the substance was to flesh, Nelson replied, it looks to me like someone has been fleshing their Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> um, yeah, no, sorry, dude. Kentucky Fried Chicken and human flesh do not look anything alike. At 7.30 the following morning, Katran and Willard returned to Cranley Gardens, by which time the drain had been cleared. The aroused suspicions, this aroused suspicions of both men. Katran discovered some scraps of flesh and bone in a pipe leading from the drain, which he linked to the top of the, f the top flat of the house. To both Katran and Willard, the bones looked like they came from a hand. Both men immediately called the police, who upon closer inspection discovered further small bones and scraps of what looked like human or animal flesh in the pipe. These remains were taken to the mortuary at Hornsby where a pathologist, Professor David Bowen, advised the police that they were human and that one particular piece of flesh had to be from a neck and it had a ligature mark on it. Upon learning from fellow tenants that the top floor of the flat where the human remains had been flushed belonged to Nielsen, Detective Chief Inspector Peter J. and two colleagues opted to wait outside the house until Nelson returned from work. When Nelson returned, DCI J introduced himself and his colleagues, explaining that they had come to inquire about the blockage in the drains. Nelson asked why the police were interested in his drains and also whether two officers present were health inspectors. In response, J informed Nelson that the other two were also police officers and requested access to his flat to discuss the matter. The three officers followed Nelson into his flat where they immediately noted the odor of rotting flesh. Decomp. I, like I kept saying, decomp. 
Nilsen questioned further as to why the police were interested in his strange, to which he was informed the, block the blockage had been caused by human remains. Nielsen feigned shock and bewilderment, stating, Good grief! How awful! In response, Jay replied, Don't mess about. Where's the rest of the body? Nelson responded calmly, admitting the remainder of the body could be found in two plastic bags in the wardrobe, from which DCIJ and his colleagues noted the overpowering smell of decomp. The officers did not open the wardrobe, but asked Nelson whether there were any other body parts, to which Nelson replied, it's a long story. It goes back a long time. I'll tell you everything. I want to get it off my chest, but not here at the police station. He was then arrested and cautioned on suspicion of murder before being taken to Harnsby Police Station. As he was escorted to the police station, Nelson was asked whether the remains in his flat belonged to one person or two. Staring out, the out of the window of the police car, he replied, 15 or 16 since 1978. Can you imagine being that cop? You're going there thinking that he disposed of a dead body. And he's like 15 or 16 since 1978. You're like, huh? What's that now? 15 or 16? You haven't even lived. Other. The last place. What's at the last place? <laughs> that evening, a detective superintendent chambers accompanied DCIJ and Professor Bowen to Cranley Gardens where the plastic bags were removed from the wardrobe and taken to Hornsby Mortuary. One bag was found to contain two dissected torsos, one of which had been vertically dissected, and a shopping bag containing various internal organs. The second bag contained a human skull, almost completely devoid of flesh, a severed, hand, a severed head, a torso with arms attached but hands missing. Both heads were found to have been subjected to heat and moisture. In an interview conducted on the 10th of February, Nelson confessed that there were further human remains stowed in a tea chest in the living room as well, with other remains inside an upturned drawer in the bedroom. Wow. Okay. So this is just a house full of body parts. How? Like I said, the stench of decomp. Like, how do you just live in a house surrounded by decomposing flesh? Like, foul. The dismembered body parts were the bodies of three men, all of whom he had killed by strangulation, usually with a necktie. One victim he could not name, another he knew only as John the Guardsman, and the third he identified as Stephen Sinclair. He also stated that beginning in 1978, he killed 12 or 13 men at his former address of 195 Milrose Avenue. Nelson also admitted to have unsuccessfully attempting to kill approximately seven other people who either escaped or on one occasion had been on the brink of death but had been revived and allowed to leave. A further search for additional remains at Cranley Gardens on the 10th of February revealed the lower section of a torso and two legs stowed in a bag in the bathroom and a skull and a section of a torso and various bones in the tea chest. The same day, Nelson accompanied the police to Melrose Avenue, where he indicated the three locations in the rear garden where he had burned the remains of his victims. Catran contacted the Daily Mirror on the 10th of February, informing the paper of the ongoing search for human remains at Cranley Gardens, leading the newspaper to break the story and spark intense national media interest. By the 11th of February, reports from the Mirror had obtained photographs from Nelson's mother in Aberdeenshire, which appeared on the front page the following day. Under English law, the police have 48 hours with which to charge Nielsen or release him. 
Assembling the remains of the victims killed at Cranley Gardens and the floor of Hornsby Mortuary, Professor Bohm was able to confirm the fingerprints on one body matched those of Sinclair. At 5.40 p.m. on the 11th of February, Nelson was charged with Sinclair's murder, and a statement revealing this was released to the press. Formal questioning of Nielsen began the same evening, with Nielsen agreeing to be represented by a solicitor, something he had earlier declined. Police interviewed Nielsen on 16 separate occasions over the following days in interviews with totaled over 30 hours. Nielsen was adamant that he was uncertain as to why he killed, simply saying, I'm hoping you'll tell me. When he asked what his motive was for the murders, he was adamant the decision to kill was not made until moments before the act of murder. Most victims had died by strangulation. On several occasions, he had drowned the victims once they had been strangled. Once the victim had been killed, he typically bathed the victim's body, shaved any hair from their torso, and then applied makeup to any um, blemishes on their skin. The body was usually dressed in socks and underpants before he draped them and talked to them. With most victims, he would stand alongside or kneel by the body. Nielsen confessed to having occasionally engaged in necrophilia, but repeatedly stressed to the investigators he never actually penetrated them, explaining that the victims were too perfect and beautiful for the pathetic ritual of sex. All the victims' personal possessions were destroyed following the ritual of bathing their bodies in an effort to obliterate their identity prior to their murder and they're now becoming what Nelson described as a prop for his fantasies. In several instances, he talked to the victim's body as it remained seated in a chair or sitting up on his bed. He recalled being emotional as he marveled at the beauty of them. With reference to one victim, Kenneth Okenden, Nelson noted that Okenden's body and skin were beautiful, adding the sight brought me to tears. Another unidentified body had been so emaciated he simply had been discarded under the floorboards. The bodies of the victims killed at his brief previous address were kept for so long as decomposition would allow. Upon noting any major signs of decomposition in the body, Nielsen stowed it beneath his floorboards. If a body did not display any signs of decomp, he occasionally alternately stowed it beneath the floorboards and retrieved it before, um, before hanging out with it again as he stood next to it or laid beside it. Makeup was again applied to enhance appearance. When questioned as to why the heads were found at Cranley Gardens, he, Nelson stated he frequently boiled the heads of his victims in a cooking pot on his stove in order so that the internal contents evaporated, thus removing the need to dispose of the brain and the flesh. The torsos and limbs of the victims killed at this address were dissected within a week or so of their murder before being wrapped in plastic bags and stowed in the three locations he had indicated to the police. The internal organs and smaller bones that he had flushed down the toilet. This practice, which had led to his arrest, had been the only method he could consider to dispose of the internal organs and soft tissue. Unlike the Melrose Avenue um, location, he had no exclusive use of a garden property. Nielsen confirmed that on four occasions he had removed the accumulated bodies from beneath the floorboards and dissected the remains and that three of these occasions he'd been disposed of accumulated remains upon an assembled bonfire. One more 
then on more than one occasion he had removed the internal organs from the victim's bodies and placed them in bags which he then typically dumped behind a fence to be eaten by wildlife all the bodies of the victims killed at melrose avenue were dismembered after several weeks or months of internment beneath the floorboards nelson recalled that the purification of these victims bodies made the task exceedingly vile and he recalled having to fortify his nerves with whiskey and grab handfuls of salt in which to brush aside maggots from the remains. Often he vomited as he dissected the bodies before wrapping the dismembered limbs inside plastic bags and carrying remains to bonfires. Nonetheless, immediately prior to dissecting the victim's bodies, he would sit alongside the corpse. He stated that this symbolic gesture was his way of saying goodbye. When questioned as to whether he had any remorse for his crimes, Nelson simply said, I wish I could stop, but I couldn't. I had no other thrill or happiness. He also emphasized that he took no pleasure from the act of killing, but worshipped the art and act of death. On the 11th of February, 1983, Nelson was officially charged with the murder of Stephen Sinclair. He was transferred to H&P Brixton and held until his trial. According to Nelson, upon being transferred to Brixton Prison to await trial, his mood was that of resignation and relief, with his belief being that he would be viewed in accordance with the law as innocent until proven guilty. He objected to wearing a prison uniform while on remand in protest at having to wear a prison uniform and what he interpreted to be breach of prison rules. Nelson threatened to protest against his remand conditions by refusing to wear any clothes. As a result of this threat, he was not allowed to leave his cell. On the 1st of August, Nelson threw contents of his bed chamber, the little pot that you piss in, out of his cell, hitting several prison officers. This incident resulted in Nelson being found guilty of assaulting prison officers and spending 56 days in solitary confinement. On the 26th of May, Nelson was committed to stand trial at the Old Bailey on five counts of murder and two of attempted murder. A sixth murder charge was later added. Throughout his committal hearing, unlike in the U.S., um, you have to have a name to charge someone with murder in Britain. In the U.S., you can do a Jane Doe or a John Doe murder. Um, in Britain, you have to have an actual name. They, they won't charge you with the murder of Jane or John Doe. So that was part of the issue with this trial is finding the names of the victims, identifying them. Um, many people actually believe that he withheld names that he knew full well who they were. And that was just a kind of bargaining chip that he used to screw with the police. Um, but yeah, in Britain, they don't, uh, my understanding of the lie could be wrong. If I'm wrong, let me know. But my understanding was at this time in, in 83, 82, 83, you had to have a victim's name. They wouldn't let you charge for a John Doe or a Jane Doe murder. Um, Nielsen agreed to plead not guilty by diminished capacity. Nielsen was brought to trial on the 24th of October 1983, charged with six counts of murder and two of attempted murder. He was tried at Old Bailey before Justice Crom Johnson and pled not guilty. Now, that was also a big deal. That he basically made an agreement. He was going to plead not guilty by reason of what we call mental defect in the U.S., and then he went and he just pled straight not guilty and everybody was dumbfounded they thought it was going to get in and out it was going to be resolved in one day and he drug it out to a full trial the primary dispute between prosecuting and defense counsels was not whether nelson had killed them but his state of mind before and during the killings the prosecuting counsel alan green argued that nelson was sane and in full control and killed with premeditation 
The defense counsel argued that Nelson suffered from diminished responsibility, rendering him incapable of forming the intent to commit murder and therefore should be convicted of only manslaughter. The prosecution counsel opened the case for Crown by describing the events leading to the identification of the human remains in the drains at Cranley Garden and Nelson's subsequent arrest. The discovery of the three dismembered bodies on his property, his detailed confession, his leading investigators to the charred bone fragments of the 12 further victims killed at Melrose Avenue, and the efforts he had taken to conceal his crimes. In a tactful reference to the primary dispute, between opposing counsel at the trial, Green closed his opening speech with an answer Nelson had given the police in response to a question as to whether he needed to kill. At the precise moment of the act, I believe I am right in doing this. To counteract this argument, Green added, the Crown says that even if there was a mental abnormality, it's not sufficient enough to diminish substantially his responsibility. The first witness to testify was Douglas Stewart, who testified that in November of 1980, he had fallen asleep in a chair in Nelson's flat, only to wake up to find his ankles bound and Nelson strangling him. Successfully overpowering Nelson, Stewart testified that Nelson had shouted, take my money. This, the prosecution attested, reflected Nelson's rational, cool presence of mind and what he hoped to be overheard by other tenants. Upon leaving Nelson's residence, Stewart had reported the attack to police, who in turn questioned Stewart, questioned Nelson, excuse me. Noting the conflicting details and accounts given by both men, the police dismissed the incident as a lover's quarrel. Upon cross-examination, the defense counsel sought to undermine Stewart's credibility, pointing to minor inconsistencies in the testimony. The fact that he had consumed too much alcohol, suggesting his memory had been selectively magnified as he previously sold his story to the press. So, I mean, this is, you know, this is a why people who experience sexual assault within a same-sex situation tend to not come forward to the police because they don't take them seriously. So it's unfortunate that they didn't take this man seriously and it was a serial killer that was trying to kill him. But um, it's really, really sad that this is a situation where the man was mur tried, uh, nearly murdered by a serial killer and they're saying, well, look at how much you had to drink. Seriously, the dude, you, you're even saying, we're not saying he's not a serial killer. We're just saying that he's mentally ill. So how are you going to sit there to one of his victims and be like, well, you did have a lot to drink. Seriously? Come on. On the 25th of October, the court heard testimony from two further men who had survived attempts by Nelson to strangle them. Paul Nobbs being one of them and Carl Stodder being the other. He recounted how in May 1982, Nelson had attempted to strangle and drown him before bringing him back to life. He's the one who thought he was trapped in the zipper of his um, sleeping bag. And now he went into counseling and therapy for a long time. He thought he had a neurodeficient experience. He thought this person saved him, but that conflicted with what he remembered. So he suffered from PTSD. He was in therapy for a while trying to understand what had been happening. Um, so it took him a while. He did break down on the stand. Um, they had to give him time to re regain his composure. Um, and the evidence that he provided was a big part of the indictment. 
Now, DCI, our Detective Chief Inspector, for those here in the U.S. who don't watch British television, uh, DCIJ then recounted the circumstances of Nielsen's arrest in his calm matter-of-effect confessions before reading the court several statements made by Nielsen after his arrest. In one of the statements, he said, I have no tears for my victim. I have no tears for myself, nor those bereaved by my actions. Jay admitted it was unusual for anyone accused of such horrific crimes to be so forthcoming in providing information and conceded upon questioning by defense counsel that Nelson not only provided most of the evidence against him, but also encouraged the discovery of his victims. And he could contradict his own version of events at any time if he wanted to. Following Jay's testimony, D.S. Chambers recited Nelson's formal confession to the court. This testimony included graphic descriptions of ritualistic and sexual acts Nelson performed on his victims' bodies, his various methods of storage, and regarding and many details about the decomposition, particularly stories about colonies of maggots. Several jurors were visibly shaken throughout this, and others looked at Nelson with incredible expressions on their faces as he listened to the testimony with complete indifference. The testimony lasted until the next morning when the prosecution included several exhibits into evidence. This included the cooking pie that he had boiled heads in and the cutting board he used to dissect people on. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's going to seal his fate. <laughs> like, I don't think anybody wants him on the street. Two psychiatrists testified on behalf of the defense. The first of few, James McKayeth, began his testimony on the 26th of October. McKayeth testified as to how, through the lack of emotional development, Nelson experienced difficulty expressing any emotions other than anger. This created a tendency to treat other human beings as just components of his fantasies. Yeah. No. <laughs> What you're describing is a psychopath, and there are a lot of people who are psychopaths or have borderline psychopathic personalities, and they have the ability to at least mimic other things other than anger. Um, so just saying that because of his upbringing, all he knows how to do is behave with anger, that's, that's a nice try, but no. Um, the psychiatrist also described Nelson's association between unconscious bodies and sexual arousal, stating that Nelson possessed narcissistic traits, an impaired sense of identity, and was able to depersonalize other people. He stated his conclusions that Nelson displayed many signs of maladaptive behavior, the combination of which in one man was lethal. Okay, that I buy. I'm, that, that I totally buy. These factors could be attributed to an unspecified personality disorder from which he believed Nelson suffered. In response to the prosecution contention that in attributing an unspecified order to Nielsen, McKeith was undecided in his conclusion. McKeith contended that an unspecified personality disorder was severe enough to substantially reduce responsibility. Okay, so he's saying that he must have a personality disorder, but he's saying, I don't know what the personality disorder is. So they're saying, well, so basically you didn't finish your evaluation of him because you can't tell us what's wrong with him, which is a good point. You can't just, what a lot of people don't realize is in the 80s and the 90s, personality disorders were like the catch-all. So people be like, he has a personality or you have pers social personality disorder was a big one. Um, and people would just say people have personality disorders. And so it was kind of like people would hear, oh, they have a personality disorder. 
oh, that must be so difficult to deal with. I'm so sorry for you. Would kind of like the reaction you would get in the 80s and 90s. So this is kind of like a, a half-assed kind of, I'm claiming he has a personality disorder, like to kind of like scare the jury and be like, oh, his personality disorder totally can't be his fault. Like, but they make a very good point. If you're going to say that he has a personality disorder, then you need to diagnose one. Be specific. What's the issue? If you can't give us a specific personality disorder, then technically you didn't complete your evaluation of him because you can't tell us exactly what the hell is wrong. The second psychiatrist to testify in the defense, Patrick Galway, diagnosed Nelson with borderline false self as of pseudo-normal narcissistic personality disorder. Okay, so he's basically he has borderline personality disorder, but he is he's borderline personality disorder and narcissistic borderline personality disorder, but he has a type that presents in which he pretends to be normal while also being a horrible narcissist so narcissistic personality disorder for some of you may have known someone or been around someone people who have narcissistic personality disorder require to be the center of attention at all times narcissists get their self-esteem from being the center of attention their self-esteem is so low they need to be the center of attention everyone must be paying attention to them it's why people who are famous people who have big egos people who seem to have the world by the balls for all intents and purposes need are narcissists they need that attention to boost their self-esteem so what happens with someone who's a celebrity or famous who's a narcissist usually that happens because their ego doesn't actually match their sense of self-esteem. So their self-esteem is low, but their ego is high. So they need to constantly be the center of attention so that they can get their self-esteem to match where their ego is. When you have a narcissist, a, someone who has a narcissistic personality disorder, especially if they're a malignant narcissist, should they have, um, that means that they're dangerous. A malignant narcissist wants to be the center of attention, but they want you to pay attention to them in a, their own way and if you ever take attention away or don't pay attention they'll get increasingly more and more uh destructive ways for you to pay attention so if ever you go no not no contact with a malignant narcissist they will do stuff like call your family call your friends they'll call your work show up at your workplace cause a scene they do destructive shit to get you to pay attention to them increasingly more and more and more and more like you have to totally commit to not paying attention. And then on top of that, you do a borderline personality disorder. There are people who they don't tell the truth a lot. Um, they really don't have a sense of self and they do put on a show, create a personality. So if you put a narcissist and then they're also borderline personality, this is a person who didn't have a sense of self. They're presenting um, a play of what they think normal is while also needing to be the center of attention. It's a lot of stuff to mix together. I don't necessarily think that's entirely true. We do know that he did um, antagonize the police. We do know that he had a relationship with this writer. He did antagonize and play with this writer for a while. So the narcissism, yes. Um, the borderline personality disorder, that I can absolutely see. I don't know all of that fitting together, um, but it's a little better than the other psychiatrist. The occasional outbreaks of schizoid disturbances, what? They're extra, I, look, when you testify in a court of law, 
if you are a normal person who knows nothing about clinical psychiatry and someone and they have a psychiatric expert, they you just want to hear a simple diagnosis. This person has borderline personality disorder. This is the type of person who does not always have a sense of self and so they have to always be people pleasing and if they don't get the type of attention that they want then yes sometimes they can re react violently that's a simple straightforward diagnosis not borderline false self as possible pseudo normal narcissistic borderline personality disorder with an occasional outbreak of schizoid disturbances as a normal juror who knows nothing about clinical diagnoses, you would be like, huh? What? That's even more confusing with the last guy who didn't really diagnose anything. So he's saying that Nelson managed most of the time to keep this hidden. See, that's even worse because he's saying, okay, I'm diagnosing him with this, but he hid it most of the time. So then how did that contribute to his crimes? It makes no sense. Galway stated that in episodic breakdowns, he would become predominantly schizoid by being impulsive and violent. See, this is also another issue. Many, 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 many millions of people suffer from schizoid episodes, schizoid disorders, and schizophrenia, and are not violent. The majority of schizophrenia, schizophrenics and people who suffer from schizoid episodes do not have any type of violent impulses. Galway further added that someone suffering from episodic breakdowns like this is most likely to disintegrate under social isolation. In effect, Nelson wasn't guilty of malice of forethought. Under cross-examination, Green largely focused upon the degree of awareness shown by Nelson and his ability to make decisions. Galway conceded that Nelson was aware of his actions, but stressed that due to a personality disorder, he could not appreciate the criminal nature of what had done. So for most people in America and in the UK, criminal to be criminally, to be found not guilty by reason of mental defect, you have to be not aware that what you did was wrong. You have to categorically truly believe what you did was right. So he knows what he did was wrong. Like, so this not guilty by mental defect does not, no matter what his diagnosis is, it doesn't apply here. On 31st of October, the prosecution called Paul Bowden to testify in rebuttal of the psychiatrist who had testified for the defense. Prior to Nelson's trial, Bowden had interviewed the defendant on 16 separate occasions in interviews totaling 14 hours. Over two days, Bowden testified that although he found him to be abnormal, he concluded that he was manipulative and he had been capable of forming relationships. He forced himself to be ob to objectify people. Refuting the testimony of both psychiatrists, Bowden further testified he found no evidence of maladaptive behavior and he suffered from no disorders. So basically, he's like, look, the dude is just crazy manipulative. And there's people like that. I think we have all met somebody who's just super manipulative. Following closing arguments, the jury retired to consider their verdict. The following day, on the 4th of November, the jury returned with a majority verdict of guilty upon six counts of murder and one of attempted murder, with a unanimous verdict of guilty in re relation to the attempted murder of Nobs. The Crom Johnson sentenced Nielsen to life in prison with the recommendation he serve a minimum of 25 years imprisonment. Following his conviction, 
Nelson was transferred to the HMP Wormwood Scrubs to begin his sentence as a Category A prisoner. He was assigned his own cell and could mix freely with other inmates. Nielsen did not lodge an appeal and accepted the crown case that he had the capacity to control his actions and he had killed with premeditation. He further elaborated on that on the day of his conviction, that he took an enormous thrill from social seduction and getting the friend off his back, the decision to kill the body and its disposal. Nelson also claimed drunkenness was the sole reason at least two of his attempted murders were unsuccessful. In December of 1983, Nelson was caught on the face and the chest with a razor by an inmate by the name of Albert Moffat, resulting in injuries requiring 89 stitches. Afterward, he was briefly transferred to H&P Parkhurst before being transferred to H&P Wakefield, where he remained until 1990. In 1991, Nelson was transferred to the Vulnerable Prisoner Unit at H&P Full Sutton upon concern for his safety. He remained there until 1993 when he was transferred to H&P Whitmore, again as a Category A prisoner, and with increased segregation from other inmates. The minimum term of 25 years imprisonment to which Nelson was sentenced in 1983 was replaced by a whole life term by Home Secretary Michael Howard in December of 1994. This ensured Nielsen will never be released from prison, a punishment he accepted. In 2003, Nielsen was transferred to H&P Full Sutton, where he remained incarcerated as a Category A prisoner. In the prison workshop, Nielsen translated books into Braille. He spent much of his free time reading and writing and was allowed to paint and compose music upon a keyboard. He also exchanged letters with numerous people who sought his correspondence. He remained at Sutton until his death on the 12th of May, 2018. In 1992, Central Television conducted an interview with him as part of a program, Murder in Mind, which focused on the profiling the offenders. A four-minute section of the interview, in which he frankly discussed his crimes, was scheduled to be broadcast, but the Home Office decided to try and get it banned on the grounds that he it had not gotten permission from them to conduct an interview with him. It was later broadcast to the public and claimed, because the television station claimed ownership of copyrighted material. Central Television challenged the Home Office, citing Copyright and Patents Act, and that full permission didn't need to be granted by them. On 26th of January, 1993, Judge Williams Aldius ruled in their favor. And the same day, three appeals court judges um, upheld that decision and the interview was screened during the evening. Nelson repeatedly sought legal avenues to challenge the real and perceived abuses of the prison system, regularly petitioning the Home Office and later the European Court of Human Rights with complaints. As a result, he was an extremely unpopular inmate with successive governors at the various prisons in which he was incarcerated. In October of 2001, Nelson brought a judicial review against the prison service, citing the gay softcore pornography magazines Vulcan and Him, to which he subscribed regularly, had some images and articles of more explicit nature removed before the magazine reached him. <laughs> wow, you're a serial killer and you're upset that they will not give you hardcore porn in jail. Like, that's your biggest, wow. Like, I'm sorry. You really don't get to complain because you're not getting hardcore porn in jail when you are a serial killer. The legal case he brought against the prison service was dismissed because he could not establish any breach of human rights. 
And I think that's enough of that ridiculousness. Um, (laughs) I hope you will join me next week when we look into the case of a New England man with actual schizophrenia who um, shoots commits a mass shooting at a bed and breakfast and in that case we're going to look a little more into how new england handles um people who have actually been committed and in the meantime i hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things